I'm glad Steve made the announcement about the new sound system. Uh, so if you find, uh, if you can appreciate what I'm going to be saying today, then it's, uh, it's a good thing. If not, then I'll chalk it up to the garbling of the speaker system. Uh, this morning, we're looking at a traditional text for this fourth Sunday of Lent. It's the ninth chapter of John. Uh, it was traditionally used to teach uh, people in the catechism classes before their baptism on Easter. In this story, one of the most vivid images Jesus uses to speak of who he is and what he represents in our lives. It's the image of light. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never be in darkness, but will have the light of light. It's an image that conveys Jesus' singular role as a revealer, as one who, through whom God's light shines, the one who illumines the meaning and purpose of our life. And our response to the light is also important. We can have our path of life illuminated or we can be blinded by the light. The story invites us to examine the state of our own vision. Let us listen together to God's word. It's a long story, and I'm going to be reading portions of this section, verses 1 through 41. As Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so that the result will be that the work of God will be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the works of the one who sent me. Night is coming and when, when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes, and said, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he just resembles him. The man insisted, I'm the man. Well, then how were your eyes opened? The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it in my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. I went and washed and I can see. Well, where is this man? I don't know. The interrogation continued. In fact, it escalated. They went to the Pharisees, the religious experts. It became more of a theological conversation, the Pharisees asking how he had received sight. And we learned that this healing took place on a Sabbath. Jesus had healed on a Sabbath, a violation, because this was not a life-threatening situation. And also the kneading of the, the mud with the spit and the clay, that kneading violated one of the 39 work laws that were prohibited on the Sabbath. And so they said, how can a sinner, meaning Jesus, do such miraculous signs? They were in this dilemma, and they were divided, probably among themselves and within themselves. 
And so finally they turn to the blind man and interrogate him some more. Then they call the parents in and say, come on, this is a hoax, isn't it? What's going on here? And the parents say, he is of age, ask him. The scripture says they, the parents at, said this because they were afraid of the Jews, the Pharisees, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus as Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And so this is why the parents said, ask him. He's, he's old enough to answer for himself. And so they go, black, go back to the man. They put him under oath. Give glory to God. We know. We know this man is a sinner. And on and on it went, arguing what they knew. The man claiming again and again what he didn't know. The man said... I don't know much about this person, Jesus, but one thing I do know. I was blind before, and now I'm seeing. And the man said, you know, you Pharisees, you experts, you you don't know where this man comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know, yes, we know that God does not listen to sinners. We all agree with that. He listens to godly people who do God's will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't do anything. Well, the Pharisees were incensed. They did expel him from their community. And Jesus found him and said to this formerly blind man, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were there overheard him and said, What? Are we blind? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we begin with this opening interrogation, who sinned? I think it's important to just look at this person for a minute or two. This this person who was born unable to see. What must it be like to live with a disability? 54 million Americans, one out of six persons, over 600 million people, worldwide. They hear these stories read in worship, expounded upon in preaching, and far too often it seems that they are viewed as people with a problem, people who need to be fixed, people who are not whole. And there comes along this quick fix. It's usually accompanied by an emphasis on the faith of the healed person. And there's often some kind of a link between 
the moral problem indicated by the disability and the healing. And so we have these troublesome characteristics potentially here in John, but in this story in John, we don't see any of that. For one thing, in John, Jesus himself does not accept the link between sin and the man's inability to see. Even though he was born blind, neither him nor his parents, Jesus had no interest in assigning blame. Moreover, faith plays no role in his healing. He doesn't even ask to be healed. This is an unconditional act of God's grace through Jesus' initiative. But perhaps the most promising feature of this text is that the blind man himself plays such a central role. In fact, Jesus disappears from the scene for quite a while, and it is this man who becomes the spokesperson. He takes center stage. He appears not simply as one who is a broken figure in need, but as a person, a whole person in his own right. He comes to be one who represents the church, a new disciple. Beyond all this, I can't help but notice that he is an adult child. He is an adult, but his parents are still in the picture. Now, there are a lot of us here who are parents of adult children or are on the way to that. How are our adult children doing? Many of our adult children are people that we are so proud of. We are so grateful for. They are amazing. And there are some of our adult children for whom our hearts break, who keep us awake at night, who we worry about, who we wonder when will they be able to thrive the way we had hoped? Can they find healthier relationships? Can they let go of the unhealthy habits they're involved in? Can they find meaning and purpose in their life? We struggle as we watch them struggle. This is such an adult child in the story. Can you imagine the parents of this man as a baby, when he was a baby, when he was a toddler, a child, a teenager, and growing up into adulthood, how they must have been concerned. Who will take care of him when we are gone? How will he adjust socially? Where will he be welcome? How will he take care of himself? And so, in the midst of this painful situation, the disciples are looking for answers. Why this evil Why this pain? Who sinned? Who messed up here? Did the parents mess up Jesus? Did they just not do a good enough job? Was it the, the man himself? Is it that he needs to pull it together? Who sinned here? Why isn't God more active? 
And as I said, Jesus has no concern, no interest in participating in that kind of conjecture. Instead, he enters this man's life with spit and mud, the potter making clay, placing it on the creature's eye and recreating a life, giving the gift of sight. The healing didn't happen until the man went to the pool, the pool named Salome, meaning scent, a pool used for ceremonial washings. The man is plunged into the life of Jesus. He becomes baptized into the life of discipleship. He comes back seeing. And when he comes back, there's no party. There's no celebration. The neighbors, the the friends around, there's, there's no joy. You would think this is the turning point. You would think, but no. All there is is controversy. What happened? How did it happen? Who did it? When did it happen? Where is this guy? Where is the party for the lost son who's returned? But the man fends off all of these questions with with his limited insight. Jesus is now absent from the story. And the man keeps saying, I really don't know. I don't know. I do know this. He put mud on my eye. I can see now. That I know. And it's Jesus' absence and this man's ascendance in the story that helps us to see the importance of this story in John's community, the the original audience of John's gospel, the church of John that he was preaching to, this man is, in a sense, a surrogate, a disciple in the making. He contends with the situations that they are going through. He has come to the light of Christ. He is beginning that journey of discipleship, but immediately he encounters all kinds of resistance and scrutiny and even suffers expulsion. It's what the church did experience at the end of the first century. And so the man is brought up on charges before the Pharisees. We know, we know this man, this Jesus is a lawbreaker, but he's performing these signs that seem only God could do. So they question the man. They question the the parents again. Give glory to God. We know. We know. Oh, we know. We, We have an accumulation of theological tradition. We have a library of books that explain it all. We have wrestled in the past. We have a foundation that we stand upon. We take our scripture literally, but we also have an accepted interpretation that has been built over centuries. We know, we know sin when we see it. We know God doesn't listen to sinners. There's a lot we know. And the Pharisees claim to see. And later, Jesus tells them, if you were blind you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. 
Here at last is the decisive answer to the question, who sinned, Jesus? Sin has nothing to do with being born blind or with violating the law, but rather with resistance to Jesus, with refusing to see when the light of the world and the works of God in this light are right here in our midst. Indeed, the light produces blindness as well as sight for those who stare at that light and refuse to recognize its power can be blinded. In the final analysis, sin and the true state of one's vision are determined by whether one recognizes the revelation of the works of God in Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. Do you see it? And so in the fourth gospel, sin fundamentally is about one's relationship with God. In in John, the decisive measure of one's relationship with God is faith in Jesus. This flies in the face of those who want to define sin in relation to right actions and right behaviors and right beliefs and therefore allows persons to establish norms for judging others. What this means is that it is not our responsibility as it was not the Pharisees to judge anyone's sins. That is only up to God and up to Jesus and is determined by faith, not by actions. So John is in a sense the most radical gospel of the salvation by grace. Moreover, this distinctive understanding of sin, this theologically centered understanding of sin, relocates the offer of salvation to Jesus' life and moves away from a narrow focus on salvation at the point of Jesus' death. We, too, might find ourselves resisting the challenge of renegotiating tradition, the challenge of ongoing revelation. We, what we think we know can get in the way of what we actually see, especially if we consider our previous illumination good enough. Once, uh, a number of years ago, I went to a theological conference in Washington, D.C., and there was shocked to see a a co-worker from, from a long past time that I hadn't seen or heard from. And uh, I'll call her name Anna. When we worked together, I knew her as an amazingly gifted young woman, a great youth minister. She had an enormous impact on young people, brought many, many people into a community of faith. She, after a number of years, went away to seminary where she won all kinds of awards for preaching and scholarship and community ministry. She went on to take a, a job at a, at a church up north 
continuing her tremendous youth ministry in the church and in the city. And then along the way, I heard that she came out of the closet. And about that time, the rules changed in our church. And people such as those could no longer serve in an ordained capacity. And so after a period of struggle, she resigned her position at this church. I knew this backstory when I saw her across the room. We made an appointment for breakfast the next morning where we would catch up. And I have to tell you, that was one of the most powerful moments of my life sitting across the table from Anna in an Einstein's in downtown Washington, listening to her tell her story. I felt like Peter talking to Cornelius. How could we deny the work of God in this person? I know the tradition that I had received growing up a good foundation, a foundation that has shaped my life, a wonderful gift through my family and through the church in which I was raised. But here in flesh and blood, I was encountering someone that didn't fit the system that I had received. We, of course, need to interpret our experiences through the light of Holy Scripture and the traditions that we have received through the creeds and through our church, of course. But we also must interpret our Scriptures and our traditions through our experience. For God is the God of the living, God reveals God's self in fresh and new ways every day. I heard that over and over the other night when we were listening to our new elders give their stories of faith. Wonderful stories. They were sharing how God was, had made some kind of impact on their life in some way, whether it was through a time of, of loss or encounter with beauty or failure, or searching, or illness. They were doing theology with their living experience. It had changed them. It had shaped them. They heard God's call upon their lives through this interpretive work. The blind man sets the one thing he is certain of in his own experience up against the standards with which the Pharisees confront him. If it comes down to a clash between what has happened to him and what, according to the rules, cannot possibly happen, he has no choice. Does he? The blind man's God does not live in a book, not even a book of the law, not even from Moses. He is not about to give up on this God who lives 
in an act of mercy in his life. The blind man's understanding of who Jesus is emerges from his struggle. His struggle with those who would invalidate his own experience. We are called to such a struggle. In fact, I think that is probably the place where we grow in faith, where God is most alive to us in that struggle to make sense of our experience in light of tradition. Claiming not too much knowledge, but only clear about where we have encountered the living one. May God give us the gift of light so that we may see the kingdom of God in our midst. And may God also give us the gift of darkness so that in not seeing, we may perhaps know something and someone we have never known before. Amen.